Hello, John Roderick. Hi, Dan. Well, gosh. How are you? You brought you brought your A game today. I hope. Oh, Jiminy Christmas. <laughs> Good. Yes. Good. So much. Good. Mm. How are you? What's up? Mm. How's the uh, governor? Mm. Oh, oh, Governor Jay Inslee. He is. Uh, he's very good politician democrat from yakima Mm -hmm. he had some corny jokes to tell uh, because that's what that's what professional politicians do tell some tell some jokes tell some corny jokes sean nelson noticed he did the he did the thing when he uh was talking to me he lean way in and talk real soft (laughs) and sean was like that's really that's that's style yeah that's 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 a thing yeah I was like, oh boy, yeah, you don't even know the half of it. <laughs> uh, so that was fun. Yeah, meeting the, you know, we were hanging out, hanging out on the street, having one of those, you know, it's one of the most delightful things when you run into a friend on the street and then you stop and you talk and then someone else comes along and then they stop and talk. I just, I've, I've, I've spent some of the finest hours of my life that way. Hmm. And um, yesterday I went up to Capitol Hill to have lunch with Sean. He works at the Stranger newspaper, which is right there in the center of Capitol Hill, which is the neighborhood. I mean, it's right across the street from my old apartment. Sean being the singer of Harvey Danger and the former and former member of the Long Winters, or rather former singer of the Long Winters, or former singer of the Harvey Danger, maybe current member of the Long Winters for all anybody knows. Right. Could happen. Uh, and uh, and so we, we're standing there. And as I'm, as I'm driving up, I'm like, I've been having a lot of thoughts about Capitol Hill and downtown Seattle, my old neighborhood, the the contemporary scene in Seattle and just feeling like, you know, maybe it's, maybe I just, it's time for me to sort of gracefully, I mean, it's been a long time since I've been in the center of Capitol Hill swinging a flag and yelling, but you know, stop, stop thinking to myself that like, that that's my turf, but like move, you know, move on, move on out of, out of the heart of the city and into some other kind of life. And, and, uh, it, I think I always thought that I would move out of the heart of the city into the heart of a even gnarlier city, you know, really like triple down on, on, uh, <laughs> triple down, triple down on, <laughs> on, on the idea of living in a loft apartment with no heat and, and spending my day, you know, wheat pasting up posters that say something radical, uh, anyway, so I get there and Sean meets me on the street and then immediately somebody coming walking down the street, a friend of ours from from times gone by, stops and we start to chat and then another person comes along. And we sit and chat with these four guys, making the you know, playing the dozens, making the jokes. And then we go to lunch and we have a we, we had a, a powerful lunch and on a way on the way out, we had the same experience, just walking down the two two block stretch of of my old neighborhood. Ran into another guy, ran into the publisher of the stranger coming out of, of work and uh, sat and talked and then the guy that owns rancho bravo tacos came by and told us the recipe for his new breakfast burrito and a couple of other you know sort of local folks and then um and then this suv that had been parked there the entire time we'd been standing there just kind of parked in a three minute load unload zone um a door opened and a woman got out and she was wearing uh, mirrored sunglasses. Much, very much a throwback. That's what's popular now. 
Well, yeah, but I was like, hmm, because she was kind of in business attire and had her hair pulled back severely and was wearing. That's a good, that's a really good look. Well, it's a very Washington State Troopers undercover look. Mm, Cool. Right? Like it just. just And you've told me that you're often mistaken for an undercover police officer. Well, less so now. Mm. When I was in my 30s and 20s. I was always, I was always made as a cop and I had to spend a lot of time and energy convincing people, primarily people in drug houses that I was not actually a cop. I actually wanted drugs, was not there to steal their drugs or to arrest them for drugs. I wanted to just get drugs like a normal customer. But now I am... I'm no longer a young cop, like beat cop. I'm more like right. one of those one of those guys on uh, Law and Order, some kind like of like a borderline. You know, not close enough to retirement, but like you're not going to walk the beat anymore, and you're kind of you're not washed up because you're still doing an important work, but like you might not be the first pick to you know to go and 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 be sent out, but you're probably not doing a lot of stakeouts at 3 a.m. anymore. Well, maybe stakeouts. The thing is, I have the vibe of like a senior detective, but somehow who never got promoted right. to lieutenant. And I'm I'm just sort of like, you know, I'm in that part of my career where probably a little, partly it's my, it's the fact I drink too much. I got divorced. You know, I lost the faith of my captain at some point. Because Were you I, corrupt at any point? Well, you know, that's really hard to tell looking at me on the street. Mm-hmm. Am, I, am I a corrupt cop or am I the one cop that isn't corrupt in the whole department? I mean, either thing could be possible. Yeah. You know, when you look at a 50-year-old guy in a Hawaiian shirt standing next to an SUV. I feel like if you were corrupt, it was more opportunistic, like everybody had been killed and you were the last man standing and there's the bag of cash in the middle of the floor. You might take that, but does not make you corrupt? Like you didn't take bribe money. You just took something that nobody else seemed to own anymore. Yeah. I mean, that's one of those. That's the, that's the ultimate Serpico question, yeah. right? Like if you find a bunch of money in the trunk of the car, who does it hurt? Right. You don't want to turn it in that everybody and everybody doesn't, you know, everybody's suspicious of you. Anyway, so the truck sits there and I'm like, huh, this is interesting. This woman has the vibe of a cop. Mm-hmm. She's just, and she doesn't, and she doesn't have the vibe of like a street cop. She has the vibe of a state cop. She's just kind of standing there with her ponytail flapping in the wind and her mirrored sunglasses revealing nothing. And oh, and she's wearing, you know, she's wearing that kind of those slacks. She's wearing those slacks that look um, darker, light color slacks. Well, they're kind of medium colored slacks, like um, like a light gray. It? No, charcoal, they're kind charcoal? of charcoal. No, they're more of a they're more of a uh, like ooh, lipstick brown. Okay. Um, Does she have a little belt, like one of those tiny nope, little leather belts? She's got a leather jacket on. You can't really see what's under under there. Like a bomber jacket guessing, or what? I'm guessing, yeah, it's sort of a bomber jacket, but fashion style. But mm-hmm. what I'm guessing is under there is her service revolver, right? Her her, her Glock. Right. And, was uh, it was it close enough? Uh, was I'm sorry. Was it warm enough in, in to not need the jacket? Well, no. If you look at my Instagram feed, you'll see I'm the only one in a short sleeve shirt. Sean is wearing a. Uh, a, a blazer right a, they all had jackets you had an aloha shirt on yeah and um and tim keck has a, has a sweater on so no it was appropriate to be wearing a jacket finally 
uh, well, so then the door of the SUV opens, but nobody gets out. But then there are a bunch of, when I was in politics, I noticed a phenomenon, which is that the powerful politicians in Washington state all have, uh, young people, pretty darn young in 25, uh, all wearing super, super, super skinny suits, tailored, 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 like very short hair, very like what I would call a, like a slick suit. Um, and it, it, in my dad's time in politics, polit- maybe the politician himself had an expensive or a slick suit on. Mm-hmm. But all the people around him were in frumpy suits, um, you know, comfortable suits. Suits they looked they looked good, but they weren't in these like pegged pants. I mean, that wasn't maybe even the style, but but they were in suits that that designated that they were they were like they looked like reporters. You know, they were kind of ah, hard bitten political machine people, mm. and. When I was uh, spending a lot of time with with politicians who were, you know, in positions of power, the mayor, the county executive, the governor, et cetera, they have these young people who are clearly like really exceptional, um, really like aggressively um, like aspirational young political operatives who are doing all the advance work, who show up before the candidate, who stand there, whisper in their ear, who they're meeting, who, you know, who have meetings on behalf of the candidate, et cetera. And they are wearing these, I mean, just like tiny little suits Hmm. where you think you can't sit down or stand up or turn around in that suit. I mean, you look amazing, but it's like, it's a form. It's a new look. It's the new look of politician. Okay. Um, is, it, what, have, is it better? Is it an improvement? I don't think so. But I'm, you know, I'm of the opinion that a lot of the suits that people in our contemporary society wear are cosplay suits. Like you're wearing a suit, but it's not native to you. You're wearing it because. It communicates all these things that you want to communicate to people that, you know, but you're putting it on as a form of, of work play. Um, it doesn't seem like the suit they're, they're, they're comfortable in them because they've been wearing them ever since they graduated from college and it's kind of what they think of when they think of their professional life. It's not like they put on a suit once a year, they wear one every day. I think more I think it's more that they didn't grow up in a world where people wore suits. Right. Their parents probably didn't at work because their parents were part of the the casual Friday revolution. So they're putting on suits and it feels like just the act of doing it feels retro and mm. and cool and like mad, mad men. Yeah, right. And so there's an element of it that that's um that just that looking at them top to bottom, you're like, you look amazing, but there's a, but, but there's a vibe that comes off of it that, that makes it feel just a little disingenuous to me. Like the governor himself is wearing a, a very nice suit, a tailored suit. Mm-hmm. 
but you can you get the feeling that here's a man in his 60s who has been who's been in a suit for 40 right 45 years. years sure and so it it feels natural it doesn't it's maybe not the suit i would choose but because in, in politics there's a lot of it's it's the rare politician that actually has an expensive suit what they have is a suit from the nordstrom rack but they know how to you know they figured out how to wear them um, and, and if you have a really expensive suit as a politician, it look, it's a bad look on you because that's not, or at least at certain kinds of politicians. Like, um, if you're just like a, a regular Seattle city council person who is, um, who's working on behalf of the poor. Right. You, you don't def- want to, you don't want to look too slick or too. Right. You know, like you, you don't want to seem like a Hollywood guy. You want to seem like a, a person that can relate. That's like, like the people you represent. And you wear, you wear a suit because it's your job to wear a suit, but you don't want to, you know, like walk around in Armani or something. Exactly. And, and you're, it's a, you're wearing a suit is is a tricky thing, right? You're trying to communicate a lot of things to a lot of different people. And the last thing you want somebody in Seattle to do is to look too carefully at how much money the city council is making. Ah, you know those guys are that they have a great job. Yeah, Seattle City Council person makes one hundred and thirty thousand dollars a year. Huh, not bad. Um, so you know you you don't want all the and and if you're making one hundred thirty thousand dollars a year and you're down on the street waving a waving a sign and chanting into a megaphone, um, <laughs> you don't want people to go like, wait a minute, you're one of the Five percent. I was at a, <clears throat> I was at an event one time. Um, so my dad's best friend was Jack Tanner, who was a was a federal judge here in Tacoma, and Jack was a he was appointed to the bench by Carter. He was a long time. I think I've talked about him before. He was a he was an important character in my family, and and I and. I, you know, he was kind of an important character in the West, uh, in the Northwest, especially in terms of he had, he, he had some landmark decisions that he made from the bench that like, he was the first, he was the first judge to rule on, uh, equal pay for equal work. Um, so he was a big figure and we were at an event for him. People threw him parties because he was politically connected and politically powerful. And he was kind of a, he was a, um, trailblazer. We were at a party. So he had a retirement party and an 80th birthday party that a lot of people came to. And, uh, I was at one of these parties for him and a, a guy sweeps into the room and, you know, kind of all eyes are on this guy and he looks amazing. And as he walks through the room and this is a room full of, politicians and judges and all these, you know, public figures. He walks through and he's shaking hands and he's slapping people on the back and he's like, ah, there he is. You know, all this stuff that my dad was good at that all these guys that I grew up around. Hey, there he is. What's a handshakes and, you know, and you can, you can, you can see the, the jokes and the finger guns and everybody, (laughs) everybody's watching him. And, um, and I've, I've seen this 
I've seen this act a billion times at this point in my life, but this guy is really good at it. Mm. And so we're all, we all just take a seat, you know, lean back and, um, and it's, uh, it's Willie Brown, the, the mayor of San Francisco. And my dad, and he's come to, you know, sort of pay his homage to, to Tanner. Right. Come to the party. But, you know, Tanner's sitting over here with us. He's not looking at Tanner. He's absolutely working the room. And it's a big room. And my dad says, wow, he looks amazing. And Tanner says, well, he should look amazing, David. That's an $8,000 suit. Wow. And at the, you know, at the time, $6,000 suit. Whatever he said, it was like an amount of money that was in unfathomable for us to imagine paying that much for a suit, a suit, you know, like you get a suit at Nordstrom rack for $400 had this and the suit. And as soon as Tanner pointed it out, you know, the suits just electric and it looks amazing on him. And he, you know, everything about him looked amazing. Obviously he had, he was exfoliated three times a day by, <laughs> you know, by special caterpillars or whatever. He, he knew how to live. Um, but, but it was, it was a thing where Willie Brown could do it because he was a larger than life politician. Everybody knew that he was, I mean, in a way, everybody knew he was on the take, right? Or at least he was, um, you know, he was one of the old style democratic politicians who was like. He was working on behalf of the poor and yeah, if somebody dropped a bag of money, I mean, I'm not saying that Willie Brown ever picked up a bag of money in a, at a crime scene, but, um, but boy, you have to be, you know, you have to be th- thread a pretty careful line, walk, walk a, a pretty narrow line to be in public service and to look that good. If right. you think about George, uh, George W. Bush, he never really looked very good. His mm, suits no. were just sort of, you know, they just looked like suits. Mm-hmm. I mean, they might have been nice suits. They might have been expensive suits, but they weren't particularly tailored to him. His ties weren't imaginative. Um, there was a phase there where all those guys were wearing, the, were buying shirts that were really, the the necks were too big. I mean, you know, the, there was the style for a while that they that their, their tie didn't fit closely to their neck. It sort of like hung there like a blouse. I, they, those guys never looked good. George Herbert Walker Bush looked like a guy in a suit, but nothing special. Bill Clinton wore a little bit slicker suit. He tried to be a little hipper, but they weren't like meticulously tailored. And Donald Trump looks like a pile of dirty clothes. You know, his suits are very expensive, but JFK looks great. Well, JFK did look great. I didn't yeah. know how far back he wanted to go, but I mean, he, he was impeccably dressed. He, he you'd was. See, you'd see a photo of him, you know, like with the family on a, on a boat on a weekend. And he just, he was a fashion icon still. But at that point, you're getting back into a place where tailoring was much more common. Like everybody looked better. Yes. Yes. Because 
because you took your clothes to have them tailored or you had your clothes made and it wasn't right. Part of part of getting not just a suit, but a pair of pants or a shirt involved getting it tailored that what you were pulling off the rack was intended and meant to be then tailored to you. It was the idea of just picking something up off a rack, even for people that didn't make a lot of money that, you know, that, that, that was not a thing you did just pulling something off a rack and wearing it. Unless maybe it was a t-shirt, an undershirt rather short sleeves. Well, that's a factor of, and that's that you see that in, you see that in the quality of, of, uh, of a lot of things made now, which is that in the past, historically raw materials were expensive. The wool to make a suit, the, the wood to make a house. Um, and labor was cheap because there were just a lot of people milling around and they all needed work. And so you had tailors who had spent their whole life, learning to sew and, and getting and getting to be experts at it and carpenters that were experts and masons that were experts and they could sit and work on a suit for a month or they could sit and, and fill a Victorian house full of decorative woodwork and you could afford you could as a builder or as a, as a buyer of things, their labor didn't add a tremendous burdensome cost to things. Right. Because uh, and you know, things were, I mean, God, my mom was saying the other day she was working in the mid seventies at King County and she was making $14,000 a year. Mm. Uh, I'm sorry. She was working at Safeco and she was making $14,000 a year. This is 1976. And she got a raise to $17,000 a year when she moved to, to King County where she, you know, she programmed their computers in the late seventies. And she was like, you know, if you can imagine how much a $3,000 a year bump mattered right, to you. Right, that would have been when, huge. When you were making 14000 a year, you know, I was making 17000 a year. And I was like, yeah. And I think she bought her house, three-bedroom house for, what was it, $24,000? And, you know, shit, you go in and get your, Get your clothes made all day, uh, all day and night, because those guys are, you know, how much is a, how much does a full, custom set of clothes cost in in an economy like that? You can't even, I can't even fathom what it is like to imagine owning a home and raising two kids on fourteen thousand dollars a year. Yeah, the money, the, the money just doesn't. There's no equivalent. It's like when you think about colonial times and. And uh, someone says, you know, I have a I have a yearly allowance of 15 pounds. <laughs> and everyone's like, well, aren't you a man of means? <laughs> right. Um, but now we live in a world where raw materials are not expensive at all. I mean, really nice wool still is. But, you know, you throw up a house with wood you get from Lowe's, like cheap. Wood is cheap. Mason, I mean, materials are cheap generally compared to the cost of labor, which adds almost all the cost to everything that's, that's made by hand. And, and it's because we have, you know, we've decided that human work is the, is the commodity. Right. Rather than, 
I mean, because because with industrialization, it costs us nothing to to uh, clear cut a forest in an afternoon. Get all those trees down here. Back when it back when it was two guys and a saw, right? Like every tree, <laughs> every every big tree was like <laughs> it was worth worth a lot. They were scarce. So now you can't get your clothes tailored unless you're a rich person. And but Kennedy looked amazing. Mm-hmm. FDR looked amazing. All those guys looked amazing because you know even Truman probably wandered down the street to some local guy and was like, make me another suit there, Jimmy. And it's all Jimmy had to do because he was probably, he was probably feeding his family of four on $8,000 a year. Blah. We would like to say thank you very much to simple contacts. It's a convenient way to renew your contact lens prescription and reorder your favorite brand of contacts from anywhere in minutes. It's vision care simplified. I bet when I said simple contacts, you thought I was going to tell you about an application that would help you manage your contacts. This is better. Because here's what happens. If you need to renew your prescription, instead of having to go to the eye doctor, spending hundreds of dollars, I think it averages about $200, you can take a five-minute vision test right at your computer or using your phone. Then this gets reviewed by a licensed doctor. And then you have a renewed one-year prescription and you can reorder your contacts. Now, maybe you have already recently been to the eye doctor and you're just out of contacts. You've got an unexpired prescription, no big deal. You just upload a photo of it or your doctor's information, and then you can order your lenses from these guys. And again, this is not just like one brand of generic lenses. This is your favorite brand. This is the kind that you like, the one that you want, the one that you're comfortable with that you've been using. The vision test itself is awesome. It's self-guided. It takes less than five minutes. Think about how much time, forget money, think about how much time you'll save compared to having to make an appointment, get to the eye doctor, take time off of work or from your family. And these things are super reliable. It's designed by doctors and licensed ophthalmologists. They review every test carefully to make sure your eyes look healthy and your vision hasn't changed. And this is the best part. They care super, super big time about customer satisfaction. You're going to get text updates on your order. You can ask questions. You can reorder via text. Like they make it easy. That's the whole point is to save you time, save you money and make it easier. The vision test is only 20 bucks. Compare that to your annual appointment. Again, that could run up to 200 bucks. Their contact lens prices are unbeatable. Standard shipping is free. And best of all, they have a special promotion for our listeners simplecontacts.com slash roadwork say it again simplecontacts.com slash roadwork or just enter roadwork when you're checking out and you'll save $30 you get 30 bucks off isn't that awesome now they want me to remind you this is not a replacement for your periodic full eye health exam they're not examining the health of your eyes they're helping you with your vision and getting your contacts so I just I have to point that out or that I, maybe they get sued I don't want them to get sued I want them to sponsor more. So go check them out at simplecontacts.com slash roadwork and enter the coupon roadwork at checkout for 30 bucks off. None of this is turning out how I planned, Dan. You mean the world or this episode? Yeah, the world. This isn't. No, this episode is going exactly as I planned. I have all my note cards here. I said, right. It said, says right here that at, at, uh, 25 minutes in, I was going to say, blah, and then make a, 
and make a transition. Sure. No, you know, I had a, I had a plan for the world like a lot of us. A lot of us did when we were young. You want to see the world go, go, go uh, kind of the way you intend. You hope to make an impact. You hope to, you hope to watch your plans unfold and you, you want to, you want to be able to stand in your own time and look forward and say, progress, progress is inevitable. We're headed toward a thing. And, uh, and, and it just, it's that uh, none of that is coming to pass. All of the things are, are not what, what any of us expected. And it's really hard to, I think, I think a lot of people's impulse in a situation like that is to, is to start pulling even harder on the oars to get things to go mm-hmm. back to the direction that they expect the direction they think is best, the direction they've worked toward. And the it's, I'm finding it very hard to do that uh, because things are, are moving so differently. And so I'm trying to adjust like, all right, well, what's the, what is a new expectation? Like what is a, what is, can you have an expectation? What are we working toward now? I don't know if I, if I any more feel like, working toward the goals of the 1960s, um, socially, economically, whether that anymore feels like my, like my mission in life. And so what is it? Certainly I've never been somebody to just get on the log ride and, and ride it. I mean, I, I want to, I, I'm a, I'm a person who wants to dig his dig his heels in mm-hmm. and make a make change where possible, but I don't even know who I'm dealing with now. I honestly don't, and uh, or what their what the uh, what the expectations are. I guess what people think is possible. That's part of it. What people think is possible. I I, I talked I I talk to people and I read the writings of people who believe that things are possible that aren't. And then I listen to a like lot what, of, like what? Oh, I mean, just like I was reading those letters that I wrote to my mom and when I was in my early twenties and, and the, and a reoccurring theme. And it was, I was writing in, in jest, but it was also very sincere was that feeling of, well, look, I'm 22 and I'm ready to go. And there are all these middle-aged people clogging up the pipes and they don't appear to be doing anything. Right. They're just sitting around complacent and I'm not complacent. I've got like solutions at hand. I understand what the situation is in the world and I'm ready to put some stuff into action, but there's no access. I can't figure out a way to get my ideas to the marketplace or to the uh, public square. And there's no access because access is choked off by these, by this middle-aged plug of people just desperately clinging to their office chairs. And, um, and they don't want to hear the good news of my generation, generation X who had all the solutions to all the world's problems. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, so I said, is this not a meritocracy? Is not the world designed around the people with the best ideas? Or is the world instead designed around people who inherit position and um, 
and reach their, you know, their level of incompetence and then <laughs> just, you know, just stand in the doorway. And my mom was like, well, you know, if you've got a good idea, it's hard. You got to have a hard, it's, there's a lot of hard work involved in, in getting up your idea up over the, uh, the barrier wall. And at 23, 24, 25, like I had a lot of great ideas, but what you, what you can't possibly see is, you know, that it isn't just a, a, a structure, a bulwark to keep, to keep complacent people in position and young people out, you know, the, the world is super complicated. Young people have a lot of good ideas, but a lot of them are not, a lot of them also are not practical. Um, there's, they've been tried a thousand times and you, when we can go ahead and try them again, but there, but still doesn't work and it doesn't work because no one, because the good idea doesn't factor in the fact that water costs money or it doesn't factor in the fact that you can't just make 10,000 people do what you want right? or a thousand reasons that your good idea isn't already the, the, you know, the way the system is run. And I've got. God, spiral bound notebooks, five feet high, stacked upstairs in a closet full of my ideas uh, in my 20s, full of my plans. And not my plans for myself, but my plans for the world. My my notebooks were never like, and then I'm going to meet Courtney Love, and then I'm going to get my movie produced. <laughs> you know, it was always like, how do we deliver... You know, how do we deliver solar power from the, from the, like in, uh, almost like inventions, Sahara desert to where it's needed in Norway, you know? Yeah. I mean, inventions and, and thought technologies, um, attempts to better the world and to make the world more, um, accessible and, and, um, equitable through just like that grist in the, in the, the, you know, the millstone being like the history of, of philosophy and technology and the grist being imagination Mm -hmm. and, and, um, like a kind of perseverance. Like I, I knew that, that cold fusion was bunkum when those guys came out, you could just tell that it was bunkum, but the idea that two dinglings with a couple of flasks and a, and yeah, I remember that and two D batteries wrapped in electrical tape could have, could have captured cold fusion in a jar. It was so tantalizing. It went around the world. We were all so just like, is this, is it that easy? Because it, because some of, some of it does, right? I mean, some of it does feel that easy. If you took an iPhone back to 1930 and, tore it apart they wouldn't it would just be gibberish to them but if you took an iphone back to 1965 yeah and gave it to somebody who had you know who had who understood solid state technology would they be able with a microscope to reverse engineer it well this is like the alien technology that we found that we've been working on for decades hmm. to try and tease out of it you know absolutely dan you're absolutely right once in a while something comes out of it you get the microwave oven you get you know whatever but like the invisible, a, invisible spies, yeah, right. That came out of that technology. Yeah, all that spies. stuff, you know, remote viewing. But it takes a and long I, time to put all this together. 
I really believed in, I believed in, um, in our, in our moment in the, in the late nineties, in the mid nineties, the eighties and nineties, I believed that this was a moment, right? We had computers now and computers were going to be able to do the calculations that kept us apart from, from miracles like computers now were going to be the, the robotic limb that we had that kept us away from, you know, or the, the lack of the, this robotic interface had, had kept us in the dark ages, but now here we were. And, and there was, and there's the 20th century is full of examples of irrigation and fertilizer and, um, and, and, uh, like micro technology that, that got more and more and more out of less and less and less. And I couldn't help because of the way I'd been raised in my, in my tradition, my, my degrees in comparative history of ideas. You know, I couldn't help but feel like all of this was part of this march of history that, we were we we did better and better and better in order to in order to lift all of humanity and and then we would create something even more magical space travel is a great example like who could have imagined yeah that in our i mean when i was born it was before we had been to the moon and then we were on the moon and it's like well, that seems like the first tiny, the first tiny step for man, if you know what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah, I was just at NASA last week. Uh, were you? Yeah, yeah. Did just you say, hi to, say hi to all my pals. I said hi to everybody, and uh, no, I was down at Kennedy Space Center. It's nice there. Yeah, I haven't been there in a very, very long time. I think I was there once in the '90s, and once in when I was a little kid in the early '80s. Take, take your kids. Yeah, I took took both kids and uh, family. We all went, and uh, they had a blast there. But they have a, a new, well, new to me, uh, Atlantis um, attraction where they've got the space shuttle Atlantis right there and, and tons of stuff around it that was just striking. It's just a beautiful exhibit like none I've ever seen before. And, uh, and of course, they've still got a Saturn V full-size Saturn V rocket oh, displayed horizontally in a huge sort of warehouse attraction. It's just, I, I mean, I love the, the shuttle, but I kind of got into that Saturn oh, V. I walked around that Saturn V at, at so Houston cool. so many times, just peering at all the little, all the tiny little pipes. It's so cool. <laughs> it's so cool. Teeny pipes. Yeah, my, my boy's like, he's like, I want to go to the Houston one. I'm like, all right, that's not a far drive. We can go that. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> you were you were there at the dawn of more or less the dawn of personal computing. I mean, oh, well, yeah. how, when when did you get your first computer? I got my first computer uh, with my bar mitzvah money at thirteen. Um, but I had already been using them before that. When uh when I lived in Philadelphia, they took me to Temple University, and uh, they had you know the big old computers that filled a whole room and they handed me a bunch of punch cards 
and I fed the punch cards into the computer. And uh, after about 20 of these cards, it printed something on a daisy wheel printer and it was Snoopy made of ASCII characters. Oh, and yeah, um, I remember that. Yeah. I mean that, that was my entrance into it, but I, I went to a summer camp when I was about 10 or 11 age. My, uh, my son is now. And, uh, the camp, my, my mom taught at, uh, community college down in South Florida. And so I went to the summer camp because she had to teach during the summer. Cause as you know, teachers make nothing. So she had to do something with me during the summertime. And one of the, the things that the thing that she figured to do with me was she could send me to their camp that they also had happening in the community college. And it was free because she worked there. So that was what I did during the day. And for some reason, and it kind of created the path that I was on my whole life, but I was lucky enough that for about an hour or two out of the day, in addition to, you know, playing uh, three stooges, uh, you know, movies during lunchtime and then having us run around and kick, kick a ball on the field, you could go and they would teach you about computers. And so you had a choice. You could either learn to program or you could just play video games on the computers. And these were very, very rudimentary video games. Like the TRS 80 was the, uh, was the main computer, but they did have a couple of these brand new ones from this company called Apple. And of course I, luckily I opted to learn how to write some programs. And so they taught us basic and, that's what kind of put me on the trajectory that I'm on now, but that was probably 10 or 11. But as soon as that was done, I'm like, no, I I have to have one of these at home. I've got Mm -hmm. to have this thing in my house. And I knew kids because I grew up in an area of South Florida where there was a lot of wealth. Um, We, we were not, we, we, we could, we could afford to pay the mortgage with my grandparents' help. And, uh, and, and so for me, you know, I knew kids that were like, they were, getting thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars for their bar mitzvah or bat mitzvah. And I, I was able to get just about enough that my, uh, my parents were able to help me a little bit. And I was able to get my first computer at at home. And that, of course, that changed everything. And we could go down the road of what the computer was and everything else another time, but it was a VIC 20. Oh, Vic 20. Yeah. How could I forget? Yeah, the Vic 20. And then later, I eventually got a Commodore 64, which changed everything. And sure. I even had a, I had a, um, a Tandy oh, color computer, too. Oh, you did? Mm-hmm. Well, one of the, one of the, one of the fun things for me about that era was that I was not like you. I did not touch a computer and go to a computer camp and learn how to program basic and see that ASCII Snoopy Mm -hmm. and think, I really want to learn this. Um, I looked at it all and I thought, that's amazing. Right. I can't wait for people to learn how to use these so that they can put my plans into action. Like, I never was interested <laughs> in computers. <laughs> you, you, wanted, you wanted people to do it for you. I, I didn't Same even... Same as now, really. What's wonderful about computers... Yeah, that's right. What's wonderful about computers is that to someone who is outside them, to a layperson, um, they seem like they could do anything. Right, sure. And my mom was 
deep in computers my whole life. Um, and her computers ran things like insurance companies and county governments and oil companies. So they weren't, those computers were, um, closed systems, right? The computer was in a building. It was working within itself on itself. Right. In order to get into the room, you had to go through three locked doors, but it wasn't connected to the world. The King County computers, um, were connected to computers within the county, but they didn't talk to computers in the world. And no. certainly Alaska pipeline computers didn't right. as much as was possible. But I, I recognized, and I think, I think a lot of us recognized just from reading Omni magazine that we had, that we were on now we, it, we were off to the races. Um, and we had to make sure we didn't build a Hal. That was the, that was the, you know, (laughs) we see in 2018 how far we are from ever being able to build a HAL. But back then it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. we don't, we don't accidentally like build a self-aware computer in 1977. Yeah. Be careful about building a HAL. (laughs) Right. And then as time went on, we realized, oh, we also did not want, um, you know, did not want like Globotech to come online or whatever. We didn't want, um. I mean, we, we still talk about the, the Terminator monster. Skynet. Yeah. Skynet. Right. Mm -hmm. We didn't, we, we, uh, Skynet became like a, like a great metaphor for what we didn't want, even though it seems like we're just barreling along trying to get Skynet online. We're just a little bit behind, behind the curve, but no, I wanted, I didn't even have a practical application for computers at the, at the level I do now, you know, now I want somebody to help me just get my shit online and <laughs> open up a store and put a PayPal button on my website. Back then I didn't, I didn't care about even that degree of connection to it. I just believed that computers were going to process information for us. And like most liberals, like most 20th century liberals and 19th century liberals, I have lived my whole life with the belief that the more information there is, the more education people have, the more enlightened they will become, the more their, their ideas will be, um, the, the more that they will discover the, what we, what, what, what we in the liberal community believe to be the truth, hmm. which is that, mankind is basically good and that if you give people opportunity, they will take that opportunity and make good things. And that ultimately if we all work together and pull together, we can make something bigger than if we are each working in solitary confinement or working in competition with each other. And that ultimately we're trying to create a global community. And all of this stuff is predicated on the idea that if there's more information and more people are educated, This is the inevitable result. You do not, in the liberal mind, in liberal thinking, you do not educate people and then discover that they have taken the same information that you had, but concluded that it's every man for himself and everyone, you know, and and life is all against all. Mm -hmm. Nasty, brutish, and short. Like this is the, this has been the premise for, 
for most of most of the United States of America. The, the premise in in the in the post enlightenment thinking was that the reason that there was poverty, the reason that there was um, suffering, was that people were excluded from the the light of of this of higher knowledge and that people were capable of it right if you if you took a child and put him in wonderful schools and raised that child in enlightenment principles that child would then have access to to this you know this world of of elevated thoughts, which would lead to elevated actions. And so the only reason that every person wasn't like that is that this poor child was, is raised as a sharecropper or as a factory worker, and they never got that education. And that is the crime right. of, of capitalism. That is the crime of, of, um, that, that is the crime that, that liberalism seeks to address. And so computers just seemed like and particularly when when I understood that there there was going to be an internet, right? It it seemed like the fulfillment of this of the of this possibility that that rather than need to pluck all these kids from their oaky you know farm shares and put them in academies, huh. we could just connect everybody online and there would be all the information in the world and we would never have to wonder about what the statistics were. We would never have to wonder about comparative religion anymore because the computer could, could tell us what the great religions all thought and, and it would distill it and produce the truth, the truths. And then we could all follow those truths. And my God, no one expected in the, in this 200 years of impassioned liberal thinking that in a world of total access to information, that it would be such a massive clusterfuck of it's not, it's not even a world of competing ideas. It's a world where there's, there is no competition. Like the ideas don't have to prove themselves against one another. You right, you were you were hoping that like the the there would be a million ideas and they would all you know the best would bubble to the top. Yeah, that's the whole idea. That's the idea of universities. That was the idea of that that that's the that's the Western tradition, right? The we're we are seeking not just to keep education like restricted to a to a wealthy minority, but to disseminate it among all the people to create a nation of philosopher kings to create, you know, I mean, public education, it's the whole premise of it. Like you don't need, you don't need a chicken farmer in Iowa to have more than a fourth grade education, but you want him to, because that's how you find, that's how he starts to vote for progressive candidates. And those candidates then take progressive ideas to the nation's capital where the, you know, where we pass legislation that extends voting rights to all. And you know, it's like, this is how, this is how it was working and how it felt like and what, and what progress felt like. 
And so, and, and the idea was that when you were introduced to enlightened ideas, you would recognize their superiority and embrace them if you were educated. And now, it, when I talk to people in my own political community, they're just astonished that other people don't share their values. And that was always the case, but people would be astonished. But then there was a reason people didn't share their liberal values because they didn't have access to them. They didn't have, um, they didn't have the time to, to think about the, the liberal understanding of the, of community, but politics and economics. And if you, you know, and, and time was kind of the factor. If, the, if you had to work in a factory all the time, you couldn't sit and really study. And, and study was required. But now it just feels like you've got half the people that think one thing and half the people that think another thing. And they both think the other people aren't educated. And there's no system by which you can take one idea and put it up against another idea and compare it compare its relative merits because you don't have a, you don't have any common framework. You don't have common, you don't have shared goals. Um, you don't have shared language. And so everybody's just shouting, just shouting into the air. And I don't, when I look at the left now, I don't see any plan. Mm -hmm. I see a, a ton of, um, expectations I see some short-term goals that people are that people get agitated about mm -hmm. but I don't see anybody w fitting those short-term goals into a framework of what they think the world is going to look like what they want the world to look like and the and the few people that are able to articulate that don't appear to understand that there are like 150 million people that don't want that mm -hmm. and what they're going to have to do about them. You know, like it's, it's easy to say like, well, the world is going to look like, you know, my, uh, college debating society, but it's like, what are you going to tell the 200 million Americans that, that think that that's a terrible idea? How are you going to get, you're just going to make them just, 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 just make them do it. Or, I mean, and there's a lot still, a lot of feelings still that, if you just show people, they will understand the wisdom of your, you know, that the, the, what they're doing is living in ignorance, right? This is, this is the problem of, of the, the modern dialectic is that now we all have access to all the information as much as we want, but somehow ignorance still persists. Um, and so it's because people are self-excluding themselves from the right information mm -hmm. or they're interpreting it, they're interpreting it incorrectly due to bigotry or due to, um, uh, you know, like, um, a kind of, uh, again, a kind of reciprocating closed system within their communities where their church tells them that, that, uh, right is left and black is white. Mm -hmm. But, but it, it requires now a certain amount of magical thinking 
to explain away the fact that millions and millions and millions of people don't share your interpretation of the data. Um, because not all of those people can be living in ignorance. You know, not all of those people are being lied to by their churches. And there are an awful lot of people that share my, my uh, political sensibilities whom I also consider living in ignorance in the sense that they're, you know, they're not, they're not thinking deeply on the, on the topic. They're just shouting. So it's not turning out how I planned. I can't, <laughs> you know? I can tell. And, and I don't, and I don't have a, I don't have a path. I can't, I can't see a path where people could get back to a shared understanding because it's, it's the, it's fundamentally true of life that there isn't one answer to things. There are, you can look at a person standing on the street corner holding a sign that says down on my luck, can you spare a dollar? And you can look at him and say, there is a victim of a, of a, of a system that has, that has chewed up a decent person and spit them out. And if only he had access to the, um, you know, to the means of production that we could put him into an apartment and then he would be an upstanding citizen and he would, you know, and he would spend his evenings reading and, and, um, and would get active in his local society. And the, the, the person in the car with you could look at that person and say, there's a, there's somebody that is just leeching off of the rest of us and, and, uh, <laughs> is just a taker and, you know, why doesn't, what, why do we coddle these people? Like he should be, um, he should be put to work somewhere if he's got enough time to stand around with a sign. And those two ideas are so incompatible with one another. Looking at the same guy with the same small amount of information we have about him. Um, and neither side, neither person would ever be willing to concede a single point to the other, you know, neither side at this point in our, in our national, uh, conversation would give an inch, a centimeter to the person on the other side. And here's this guy with the sign. And the, and the question is, what do we do? What do we do as a culture? Because, you know, he doesn't want to be there. Nobody wants to see him there. And the solutions to this guy if you if there is an even if you can even say that if you can even say there's a solution to him mm -hmm. to his predicament those solutions follow from those initial assessments of what his situation is what his problem is who he is and so on the side that you know the solution is all these ideas about what what to do about people who have fallen through or who are who are poor ultimately poor, disabled at a disadvantage. And on the other side, there are all these solutions to problems that stem from the premise that the poor kind of deserve their poverty or, you know, or you're only poor if you don't work hard enough or if God didn't smile on you or whatever. How do you wade into that as, as someone who's coming from, hundreds and hundreds of years of believing that as soon as everybody just 
read all the books and saw all the data that this that the answer would be clear the solution would be clear the fact is that the liberal tradition turns out to have also been based on a lot of magical thinking it isn't necessarily true that people um who are all if you just expose everyone to rousseau that suddenly you have a <laughs> that they automatically go like yes agreed um there are an awful lot of competing writers too. And, you know, we're living in a world now where, where 80% of the left is like proceeding from, from Derrida that they never read. And I, and I still feel I was, this is the big part of the conversation I was having with Sean Nelson yesterday. Like we were, we came up believing that we, could help and that the and that our that the little computers that we carried around with us in our heads were going to be part of the formula of, of doing these calculations and spreading the word convincing people through our writing and through our work and uh you know he's like i got <laughs> i have no more idea than anybody else now and, um, you know, he's a, he is a, an editor at a, at a newspaper that used to have a tremendous impact in Seattle. And he said, nobody reads it anymore. Nobody reads the newspaper anymore. I mean, I guess people sitting around in cafes waiting for friends who, who decide <laughs> today, I'm not going to look at my phone. You know, maybe they pick up the newspaper and read it. But most people sitting in cafes who, you know, you used to walk into a cafe in Seattle, every person in there was reading The Stranger the day it came out. And now everybody's looking at their phones. And The Stranger's online, but you don't start at the first page and read the newspaper on your phone. You, you, you follow a link to, a, to an article about a band you like, or you go read Savage Love or something. But you're not – so the, the, the newspaper's viable. It's driving traffic to its website and selling ads. But the idea that everybody in Seattle still reads the stranger every Thursday, it's gone. And so Sean says, here I am. I write 15,000 words a month, put it in the newspaper. And you know, we get real time statistics about what's being read and who's reading it. And it's like, we put the paper out in the, in the cafes and we see them, see people take them but the newspaper is no longer the way and he's like i'm not gonna what am i gonna go do just sit at my computer and write polemical screeds and put them online and hope people you know put them on medium and hope people read them so and and shit for me i mean i'm i'm so lucky we're so lucky to have podcasting Mm-hmm. because this energy in me to think about this stuff and talk about it has a still like a last, a last toehold in a world where people are patient and they're self-selecting to participate in a, in a media that is 
that requires patience and is deliberative and accumulative over time, right? Podcasting is, is very different from like spinning the dial on a radio. If you For settle sure. on a podcast and you're listening to it over time, you, you are accumulating a right. world a, a you know, a basis. Oh, so lucky. I'm just, I, I can't imagine how I would feel if I didn't have a venue. But yeah, I mean, I, I think, I think there's something people often compare podcasting and, and the fact that we're still very much in the dawn of podcasting, which I don't know if that's true or not. Either. They often compare it to, you know, when the web and blogging first, <clears throat> first became a big thing, Blogs, but you know, and yes, I mean, that was the first time I think in history that a, a regular person, regardless of their uh, level of education or connections that they had or didn't have uh, or whatever, could write something and get it out in front of potentially thousands or hundreds of thousands, maybe even millions of people, potentially. That was the first time that there was even a mechanism for that to happen, right? You know, like when I was a kid... And I wanted to be, I wanted to be a, a writer, for example, you know, like your dream as a writer, especially a journalist would be like, I, I want to work for what the New York times, Washington, you know, what a, a big newspaper, time magazine, something like that, because that was the only way that you could possibly get the thing that you wanted to write out in front of anyone. If you wanted to write a book, like you better be good enough for a publisher to want to take a risk and publish. And all of a sudden, blogging in the web was like, no, you just can write this thing. And if it's good, maybe people will eventually find it. And you can forget self-publishing on Amazon. Just like you could write something and it would be out there in the world. And, But I think podcasting is so different from that. And it's different in a lot of ways because there is something I think that's much more personal about hearing somebody's voice. You know, before we had written language, we had spoken language. There is nothing more natural than hearing the sound of a human voice, being in your mother's womb and hearing her voice talking. That's the first thing a human being hears. And so there's something very personal and, uh, and intimate about a podcast and now there are these mechanisms that let us make them and produce them and put them out there. And it's, it's not effortless, but it's easy. Uh, it's not easy to do a good show, but it's easy to create something and get it out there. You know, it's, um, it's kind of remarkable when you really well, think about it. And this is a question I guess I have for you, which is that the idea that the idea that blogging finally made it possible for everyone who wanted to publish their written work um, would, would finally have an opportunity. You know, uh, originally that was, uh, again, uh, the idea was uh, uh, that it would be meritorious. Sure. Everybody could publish their stuff, but only the good stuff would get passed around. Right. Because people would select the best. Right. And so it felt like that, that initial blogging revolution, the initial Twitter revolution, uh, felt like they were still in, still a part of this liberal march 
Um, and they were exciting and we all embraced them excitedly because we expected this to be the case. The whole idea of thumbs up, thumbs down is just like, well, the, you know, this stuff got thumbsed up and so it's right, best. Right, right. That must be what's best. And what we've seen in just recent years is that no shit gets thumbed up, thumbsed up because it's <laughs> the worst and people do not self-select the best material. Mm -hmm. They don't. And, and this has, uh, this has always been the flaw in that liberal argument, which is that when given the choice to sit and read Rousseau or to sit and read penthouse magazine, mm -hmm. you'll find that most people choose penthouse. And so how do you, how do you reckon with that as a, as a liberal, as a, as a, as someone who believes in the, in the, that education will bring out the intrinsic good. And so often, too often, what ends up happening is that the, that the, um, liberal theorists say, well, people don't want to read this really smart, um, polemic that I wrote. They want to read penthouse magazine, but that's fine. I'll just do the thinking for them. Like, we'll just take it from here. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's the, that's the problem when you get into a lot of leftist governments is that they do believe that they have figured out what's virtuous. Um, and the fact that the rest of the people didn't go ahead and read those volumes doesn't matter anymore because you know, the, the little brain trust here will, will be your benevolent dictators. But with this, with this revolution, blog revolution, Twitter revolution, we watched in, in such a dramatically short amount of time, a system where you, you remember on Twitter, you could go to fave star and the things that had the most stars often were the funniest things. It was kind of miraculous. Like, you wanted to get fave stars for your thing because it did feel like. Right. I remember that. It did feel like, wow, I got 60 stars. Like I deserve 60 stars for that. <laughs> right. And it was, <laughs> right. it actually felt like real currency. Yeah. And it was, and then, and the first shade that got thrown on it was it became a popularity contest. The people that always got a hundred stars kept getting a hundred stars. And people, um, even for their shoddy stuff and new arrivals to Twitter would say, I'm just as funny as that hundred star person, but nobody knows me. Nobody likes me. I'm not part of the gang. And it got, you know, a little bit, it started to get a little shade on it pretty quickly. Um, because people accused it of being a, you know, exclusive. And then there was that phase where it was like, well, if you follow me, I'll follow you or follow back, follow, follow back, follow back, follow back, trade you follow. And if you don't follow me back, then you're, then you, if I follow you and you don't follow me back, then you're some kind of snob. I was like, I don't know, man. I don't know you. I don't want to read your stupid tweets. Oh, oh, are you too good for my tweets? Well, yeah, kind of. Your tweets are fucking stupid. But there, that was a weird moment where it was where people were trying to democratize it. Like, oh, well, if we all follow each other, then uh, then we'll all have we'll all be following twenty five thousand people, and our Twitter feeds will be just 
total gibberish. Right. But but at least it's equal. And now there's no quality anywhere. I mean, honestly, I'm I look for it every day. Where's the quality now? Where's where are people where are quality thinkers thinking quality thoughts in an environment where they're not being you know, where they're not screaming at each other or producing like lowest common denominator pander. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I don't also don't have the time to sit and read every, every blog, but here we are in podcasting and you're saying, you're talking about this intimacy and you're talking about this connection. And is there something about it? Is there something about this form that immunizes it against, um, I mean, because there's nothing keeping people, there's nothing keeping every single person listening to this show right now to start a new podcast where they just right. read the newspaper, but yell, yell it. <laughs> there, Our there's, top star. there's some like that. <laughs> the Garrett, the Garrett Morris version. Right. Our top story tonight. Um, but like what, what is the, (laughs) how, how do we now, I mean, I guess, I guess I don't know how to put filters on things where I'm not falling prey to the, to the problem of the modern age, which is that you filter out news that you don't want to hear. Like it's not hard to put filters on stuff. You can filter everything down to the, to the you know, the, the, the smallest particle, Mm -hmm. but that's not how you create a well-rounded society. I mean, you have to give everybody a little dose of everything, but how do you do that? How do you aggregate? Nobody wants to go read a, a website that, um, I mean like the Atlantic magazine keeps trying to be above the fray. They're smart there and they are trying to, they're trying to do this magic trick of like make articles that are entertaining that people want to read that are politically moderate, Mm -hmm. unbiased enough, but that also allow us to be real. Like, you know, you can't write an article like Trump lies and then, another article that's like Trump tells the truth. You know, that's not balance. Trump does lie. He does not tell the truth, but you could, you know, you could conceivably write an article that was like Trump lies for the better good. (laughs) You know, there are lots and lots of people that feel like Trump lies, but that doesn't matter Mm -hmm. because we know what he means. His lies are just hyperbole and it's small potatoes and don't get hung up on it because he's got a because he's doing good work out there. Like that's the other article uh, to counter the Trump lies all the time article. Mm. The Atlantic can't really do that. You know, there, there's no place in the world where you could have those two viewpoints share a page or not. Not many, not not many places that are then going to become the lingua franca, like the common currency where everybody wakes up in the morning and has to read um, the, the, the same front page 
I guess. We would like to say thank you very much to Squarespace. You can do so much with Squarespace. You can turn your cool idea into a new website. You can showcase your work. You can blog. You can publish content. You can sell products and services of all kinds. Promote your physical business, your online business. Announce a special event that's upcoming. So much more. And it's done beautifully. Beautiful templates created by world-class designers. They've got built-in e-commerce functionality. You can customize look and feel. The settings, the products, all with just a few clicks. It's optimized for mobile right out of the box. Now you can buy domains there. They have over 200 extensions. Analytics that show you how your website is growing. Built-in SEO. I could go on and on, but I think you get the idea. They even have award-winning 24-7 customer support. They want you to make it. They want you to make it yourself, and they make it easy for you to do that. So if you're starting a new business, if you've got an event coming up, if you've got uh, something you want to promote or publish, you've got a, an album you want to put out there, whatever it is, you can do it with Squarespace. And here's where you go. You go to squarespace.com slash roadwork. If you like the show and you enjoy listening to the show, just go there. That'll support the show. They'll know you're listening. You don't even have to buy anything. Squarespace.com slash roadwork. But when you're ready to check it out, they have a free trial there. And when you're ready to launch or when you're ready to buy a domain, Even if you don't want a website, you just want to go get a domain, you can do that. Use the code ROADWORK, one word, ROADWORK, and you'll save 10% off your first purchase of a website or a domain. So go check it out, and we appreciate the support of Squarespace. It's squarespace.com slash ROADWORK, promo code ROADWORK to save 10% on your first purchase. And so, uh, like, personally, like, personally, what what do I do? My whole relationship with the internet now is, like, unfollow, unfollow. Right. And that's a weird relationship for me to have with information and with other people's voices. And like, I've, I've always been more, 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 right. More weird viewpoints, more people, more talk and to just go on and, and, and have somebody that I know and admire and know in, know in person, like as a real person, just say enough things online that I'm like, well, unfollow, like I'm still friends with them. I didn't, I didn't unfriend them personally. I still love that person. I just don't want to hear them. Right. You don't want to hear what they, whatever they, I know there are lots of people that I'm friends with in real life or that I've known for years online and what they put on Twitter is absolute crap. And they retweet people who I think are idiots. So I don't follow those people, but it's not personal. It's what it's, it's the way they are in Twitter is uh, interferes with my ability to enjoy Twitter, which is mm. minimal anyway. Yeah, that's right. You know, and so, you know, if they get on some kick where they're retweeting some subject that I'm not interested in, you know, I'll mute them. And then if after the mute wears off, they come back and they're doing more of it, I'll unfollow them. Yeah. But it's not personal. Like, like when you were talking about the fo- whole follow back thing, like people take it very personally if, if you follow them on Twitter or if you don't, or if you have unfollowed them, like it's, it's very personal to people because I think for whatever reason, people's identities really get wrapped up in what, what it is that they're doing online or on Twitter or in social media. And, you know, like if, if you were going to judge who I am as a person based on my Twitter feed, my God, makes me just want to destroy my, every computer I've ever used. 
<laughs> because that's not, I'm not like that. And you know, what I share on Twitter is, is it Instagram is a thousand times more a, a window into me than Twitter is. And Instagram isn't even slightly a window into me. Not that anyone would want that anyway, but if they did, uh, Twitter would be the wrong place to go. And the idea that, you know, everything that you say now on Twitter is, uh, I mean, it re and I'm, I, I, I don't like it that it's like this, but everything you say, there is somebody who is, who is being hurt by it, no matter what it is. There's somebody that's being hurt by it. Somebody who's being offended by it. And, and those are legitimate feelings. Those people are legitimately being hurt and offended. They're not overreacting. They're just, it, it bothers them. It hurts them, you know? And, but that's what happens when you speak to tens of thousands or millions of people. Eventually, if, if, if you say something and enough people hear it, somebody's going to be offended or hurt by it. It's just the way it is because there's a lot of people in the world. And if you, if you say something that to you is, is silly or funny or whatever to other people, it, it, it might affect them. And, but we as human beings, I don't think, and my point is we're not really designed to interact with that many uh, people. We're just not, um, you know, I, I always forget what the number is, but they did some kind of a, kind of a study where they said, if you, you can't, a human being can't know more than, 43 people. I don't know what the number was. It was something like that, that you can't have a meaningful friendship or relationship with more than a certain number of people, because that's apparently when we had, um, when we were living in a more tribal way, the largest size of a sustainable tribe was a certain size. And that way you could know everybody. You could know everybody, you'd know all their kids and their parents and everyone in the whole place. But once it exceeded a certain threshold, you wouldn't be able to know everyone and have meaningful relationships with them. You might know them as a person that you saw at a party and you can say hi to them and talk to them, but it's not like you're like today. I, I, you know, I was in Florida last week and it was horrible. So I had to reset and I reset by getting barbecue. So I went down to the barbecue place. I've been a few times before to this particular place <clears throat> And the lady remembered me and uh, at the end of uh, giving her my order, she said, and no onions and no bread. Now I've only been there what, two or three times before maybe, but she uh -huh. remembered that. Yeah. You know? And so I think some people are, are better at that than others, but still like the idea of going out onto Twitter and saying something and knowing that almost anything you say, like it's going to harm somebody else. Like that's no fun. And because of Twitter and because of the the crowd mentality of Twitter, the minute that somebody is hurt or offended legitimately, uh, there's now a thousand other people who will rally to that person's cause to defend them, to attack you, to destroy you. Now, this hasn't happened to me personally, per uh, fortunately, but that's because the stuff I say on Twitter is nonsense. <laughs> Like if someone's reading Twitter to glean anything that, on my account, that's go somewhere else because it's nonsense. And, you know, and, but that's not how a lot of people feel about Twitter. For a lot of people, Twitter is like how they communicate with the, the world. 
you know, and, and, and I think they assume everyone else treats it the same way. Unless, unless you're like some, you know, somebody who's, who's only ever posted knock, knock jokes or something, (laughs) you know? And then it's like, okay, that's, that's the person that does the knock, knock jokes. And I'm still offended because I don't like knock, knock jokes. So I'm offended by them. They shouldn't do that. And we're just not designed. We're not engineered as beings to communicate at that scale, at that level. It's, it's not like pursuing an interest. It's not like saying, I'm going to go to the library and check out a book on this topic that I'm interested in to see what this author says about it. And you know what? They're so wrong. I have to go and research and write my own book and I'll get that published to, that's not how it is anymore. It's instantaneous. It's tweeting it at 2 a.m. and not really thinking about it and then realizing that you said something dumb. You know, and I, I don't know. Things have definitely not turned out how I thought they would. And I, I definitely think that, uh, that Twitter is harmful. I, I, I've gone from loving Twitter, especially when it was younger and newer, to now thinking that it's, it's more harm. It does more harm. It's done me way more harm than good, personally. Back when I used to care and I used to try to communicate with people there and say things there. Uh, it, it became a very, very negative, poisonous environment. And now I, I have to look at it as a silly little thing and a, a place to go to say funny little things, a place to go to ask, hey, uh, does anybody uh, know where I can get a lightning cable for less than $10? Because anything more than that, it's, there's no value to it. Everyone's trying to one up everyone else with a better joke, a better response. I just, I gave up on it completely and I got out. I mean, I didn't leave it, but I got out of trying to take it seriously. Whereas you sort of took a break from it. Like you, you went away from it for a while and you're, you're, I think kind of back, but I think the people who are happiest on Twitter are people who treat it as a a one way. You know, I'm going to say something and I'm not looking for responses. I'm not even reading responses. I'm just going to tell you about my tour dates. I'm going to tell you about, you know, here's a photo of me in the gym. Hashtag gains. Life goals. You know, and then get out. It's when you start trying to communicate with other people, really, that you run, I think, run into that kind of trouble. But what does that say about us as a society? Like, we're just, I think, we're just going in the wrong direction as a whole. I think we, you know, the, the less time that I spend, I mean, I have to be on a computer because that's how I make my living. Like I'm writing code. I'm doing things like that. But, you know, I, I have, I have TweetBot running right now, but I almost never have TweetBot running. I almost never look at Twitter during the day. I used to spend way too much time on it. You know, I moved the icon off my main screen i have it on a sub screen now on my phone i don't even want to use my phone you know like the idea of like if you if you went back in time and looked at the way people would use a typewriter that's a tool the way people would use a wrench or a hammer that's a tool i need to go write something i'm going to sit down and type it type it on the typewriter or if they were recording i'm going to go into the studio and speak into the microphone I'm not like just sitting around with a microphone in my hand like at 10 o'clock at night. But that's how we treat this kind of technology. 
and it's gone beyond the point of people being addicted to it. Addicted, I think at least in that way, you kind of acknowledge that this is a thing that you're doing. You know, for people who who smoke cigarettes, like they may have aspects of that ritual that's unconscious, but they know, like, because they're going to buy cigarettes when they're running low, they know what they're they know what they're doing. They're holding a cigarette. They're doing it. It's an activity. But people don't even realize that they're using Twitter or realize that they're on Facebook. They're just all of a sudden look down. Oh my God, I've been like laying in bed, staring at my phone for two hours. How did I get, how did I get here? Why is it one in the morning now? Or why am I late for work? Oh, I guess because I laid in bed reading, you know, reading Facebook for 45 minutes. I think it's poisonous. I think it went from something that, that could have been very, very beneficial to people. And, uh, you know, I remember when Facebook, my next door neighbor, this is maybe nine year, eight, eight, nine years ago, my next door neighbor, I, I didn't have, use Facebook at all. And he'd say, oh, we just got back from a trip. And uh, you want to see some pictures? I'd say, yeah. And he'd send me a link to Facebook. Like that's how he shared pictures. That's how he shared the story of his trip with his family was on Facebook and more and more this kept happening. And I said, all right, I'll, I'll make a Facebook account so I can like see these other things. And all I really found on Facebook that was, you know, like ex-girlfriends from high school. And there was really nothing that I ever liked there. I never really spent that much time there, but Twitter was much more appealing to me because I felt like at the time when I first started with Twitter, at least the people that I knew they were fairly geeky. It was for nerds only at that time. And you could get in, you could say something and you get out. You know, like, oh, here's this funny thing, guys. What do you think of this? And I'm out. And, you know, and I think there, Twitter has been invaluable for helping spread the word about podcasts that I've done and shows that I've done. And that's mainly what I do now is I'll go on there and I'll share. I'll talk about something. If I have an announcement to make, I'll, I'll make it. Um, I will read other people's Twitter sometimes, but now I follow so few people. And my rule now for who I follow on Twitter for the most part is I have to have met them in real life. What? I have to have met them in real life. No, or, really? Yeah. Well, you won't follow anybody. There's you no, met there's in real three. Life. There's three. Oh, I see. Either I've met them in, I've met them in real life. I've known them online for an extended period of time, meaning like I've done a podcast with them or I've had emailed with them for many years or something like that. Uh, or they are a public figure, celebrity type person whose work I'm interested in. Uh, and, and that's really it. I, I generally don't follow anyone who doesn't fit into that criteria um i'm not saying that there might not be an exception or two in there but i follow i think i would have to double check but i i think i follow less than 100 people but who 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 will who does that system eliminate like it, it eliminates so much of the what i would say kind of meaningless banter and chatter and you know i'm using it in a way that's like this is how i'm going to see what the people that i care about are are up to um these you know if if you're one of the people that i met in person then i you know would consider you a, potentially a friend and acquaintance and i'm following you 
not out of obligation anymore, not because you follow me, but because I'm, I'm genuinely interested in you and your life and the things that you're doing. And, and that might be true for a, a media figure or a public figure whose work I appreciate uh, that I've never met. You know, like I, f- I think I follow Mark Mothersbaugh uh, because, you know, like just in case Devo comes to Austin, maybe I want to go see them. <laughs> you know, or maybe he comes out with some weird new music for something. I want to hear about it. So like, you know, but, but I'm not engaging in conversation with him. I'm more just looking for his, um, oh, I did this new thing. You know, there's other people who are podcasters who I like, I like when they do a show and I want to know about it, or I want to hear their thoughts about it. And maybe there's a little inside information that they're sne- Oh, here's a little backstage thing. Like, that's interesting. But I'm no longer just following people because they said something interesting or funny or outrageous or that I I'm no longer following people just to follow them or because they're they my friend said you should follow this person. They're really funny. I I eliminated all of that and I probably unfollowed 300 people or more. And I feel like now Twitter for me has become very boring but it's made it easier for me to not spend too much time on it because now if somebody tweets, it's like, Oh yeah, I know. I know that person. Why? Because when I was in New York, I toured their office and had lunch with them. That's why I follow that person, you know? And, and I don't care if they follow me or not. It's no longer, it feels like a game. It's not competitive. It's not, uh, it's not anything anymore except a way to sort of follow up with people that I, that I like. Um, and I, I had a bunch of people when I unfollowed en masse, I had a bunch of people say, oh, thanks for unfollowing me. I don't know how exactly they know. Is there a thing that tells you if someone unfollows you? I don't know. Um, or like, well, I tried to direct message you and I noticed you don't follow me anymore. So I had to write you this email. I'm like, good, good. I'd like to communicate with you over email better anyway. But then I opened my DMs so that people could just DM me. But I don't know. I don't, I don't, you know, I, I don't, I mean, I think those days of just following people for the sake of following them, it, it, it became so much that I would look at my Twitter feed and it was just frustrating. I was like, God, there's so many people. There's so much. I and I found I would miss the stuff that I actually cared about. You know, my, my friends who just had a kid, they announced it on Twitter. I didn't see it because there was 50 tweets uh, and retweets about, or 500 tweets and retweets about, you know, something Trump said. Well, I can see what he said if I want by going to the news websites and I'll I'll see what he said or I'll watch the video. I don't need to hear other people retweeting it. And then, you know, then there's the whole matter, John, of opinions. And the fact is, is well, I don't agree with anybody on anything usually. Uh And so any, I found I started to dislike people that I liked because their opinions were different. And I realized, you know what? I wouldn't sit and talk for example, I'll pick on politics. I wouldn't sit and, and, and talk politics with somebody at dinner unless I was like, that's the person I go and talk politics about. You know, I don't want like a regular friend and I to like engage in a deep political conversation unless I'm or that's unless I'm like prepared to do that with that person. I don't want to see that constantly in my feed because I don't agree with anybody about anything. Literally, there's nothing anyone has ever said that I agree with completely. And so it just became frustrating to see all this stuff. See, there's one guy that I know, 
He's always talking about how bad uh, cars are, how bad cars are and how cities are designed around cars instead of around people. And it's a plague and uh, constantly making fun of cars and say, oh, you're going to go with bikes. Bikes are the next big thing. And these little scooters that people ride around and next big thing. But what what he what he's really saying is people who don't agree with me on this don't really get it. They don't really see. They don't really see the future. And anytime I've talked to him about it, he'll always point these things out. And he's he's always talking about cities. Like, well, I don't I don't live in the city part. I live out in you know suburbia, and you know, like where I live, like a car. That's how people get around. It's it's Austin, Texas suburbs like cars are the way that we get around and that's how we do everything and like i don't need to be made to feel bad that i have a car or that i use it or that i use it to capacity that a lot of the time there's four or five people in my car at the very least there's three and you know like i respect what he's saying about cities and things like that but for some of us having a car like that's well like having the car i have is well suited to the job that it needs to do out here but like, do I unfollow him? Well, yeah, I guess I got to unfollow him because it's all he's talking about. You know, and so it's it's gotten to the point where like we can't just have fun conversations anymore. It always very quickly becomes differing opinions. And if it makes you feel bad, stop doing it. So I stopped. I kind of stopped doing it. You know, it, it feels. Also, I think it, 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 it does feel like a combative place. And when people continuously, you know, get on a kick about something, they're thinking of Twitter the same way I, I am I'm thinking of Twitter. And that like, they can go and talk about this thing and they don't care. Right. I don't have to follow them. But I do, I do, I have a, a criteria where if I, if I haven't like met you or if I don't know you uh, or haven't gotten to know you, then I'm, I'm probably not going to follow you because it just, it just, fl- because then all of a sudden I'm going to find out that like, you're really into like barbaric knitting and you're going to retweet every comment about knitting that comes up. And now I've got 50 tweets about knitting in my feed. I don't care about good for you, but I don't want to hear about it, but it's not like I can filter that out. It's very different from the web where you can go and find the article that you're interested in and you can read that article or that series of articles, or you can go on a subreddit that's interesting to you and read the, things people are saying on that subreddit. It's not categorized that way. Twitter has no categorizations. So you can say hashtags, but I'm not following any hashtags. I don't want to follow hashtags because then I've got millions of people, not just the people who are dedicated enough to post to this one board. And that's the problem is you think that you're categorizing by following certain people, but you're really not. You're just opening yourself up to the flood of whatever is interesting to that person and generally speaking, I'm, I'm not that interested in most of the stuff other people are interested in. I'm interested in my stuff. You know, I'm interested in a percentage of the stuff that you are interested in, John. But there's a lot of stuff that you're interested in that I don't care about. And I'm positive the reverse is true. You know, when I'm tweeting about something that has to do with the, you know, the next Ruby on Rails release candidate, you don't care about that. You know, or if I'm talking about the game of Splatoon I played with my kid, like you don't, you don't, you don't have a Nintendo Switch, and you don't care about that. That might be passingly interesting to you, but then what if I started 
ranting about something that you actually sort of fundamentally disagreed with, whatever that might be. Well, eventually you're going to be like, what's Dan going on about that for? So now you have to make a choice. Ignore me. Engage with me by potentially fighting me on it. Um, you know, or just feeling bad about it and not doing anything. And none of those are good choices for you. I don't know. I just, I feel like it's, it causes so much harm. You know, this whole thing with Roseanne uh, Barr tweeting about the thing she tweeted about that wound up getting her show canceled. Now she's like depressed and, and all screwed up. Like that was a really dumb thing to say and a really dumb thing to do. And look at, look at the trouble she's gotten in over that. Rightfully, perhaps. Well, she didn't have to do that at 2 a.m. after she took her Ambien or whatever her story was. Like, that was a really dumb thing to do. If there had been no Twitter, well, of course, she wouldn't have done it. But, like, still, there's no barrier between your thoughts and what you say on Twitter for most people. They don't hold anything back. They say whatever they feel like they want to say. And if you happen to be a, a person with enough of a following, then you're hurting other people's feelings and offending them. And it just, uh, it's no good. That's all I got to say about that. <laughs> I mean, am I, am I wrong? Am I wrong? Well, I mean, where would I begin? Pick a place, no, jump mean, in. I, there, that was, that was, I think the greatest dance soliloquy of our whole show. <laughs> Maybe. I don't believe that I've ever heard you go uninterrupted that long on, on, uh, on a, on a, a variety of topics. Yeah. I think our listeners are going to be. They're going to turn it off is what they're going to do. No. Whoever's still be, left. Hey, three, <laughs> how you doing? I think they're going to be very pleased at hearing inside the mind of Dan unfiltered. Mm. It's too pessimistic. Nobody wants to hear that. I'm very pessimistic. I used to think I was just realistic, but it, and people would tell me, you're very pessimistic. I'm like, no, I'm realistic. You're pessimistic. Or mm. you're too optimistic. You can't see the real world. And now it's just flat out pessimism and cynicism. I think that's all that's left. <laughs> After my soul was eaten. I know I, I want to, you know, I want to change it, John. I want it to be better. I don't want it to be that way. I want Twitter to be like a fun place I can go. But you know, like it's like one of those things when you go, like when you, I worked at Disney in the theme parks, you know, and like my job was uh, at various points in times. One of them was um, the Muppet Vision 3D, which they changed to 4D. The fourth dimension, John, is audience participation. Oh. Uh, so I worked at Muppet, Muppet Vision 4D where you would sort of, your job was to like herd the the guests, as we called them, herd the guests into the one of two theaters. First, the little theater where they're standing and waiting and then another bigger theater where they watch the main uh, movie, which is 3D and also has the Muppets interacting and Sweetums comes out on stage and that type of thing. Oh, Sweetums. Sweetums. You remember Sweetums? He's the big, the big monster. Um, yeah, people often compare me to, to Sweetums. Okay. And, uh, when I, when I was missing my tooth, I, I can, no, I totally see it. Tweeted a lot of Sweetums pictures. I, yes. I'm going to make a note of that. Long, and, when I had long hair and no tooth. I yes. Yes. I know. I'm looking at a picture now. I definitely see it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, 
you know, you would, you would herd the people into that. And then, then you also had to like hand them out the 3d glasses. And then there was one, you would go through it the way Disney parks work, I assume still, and, and used to work is, uh, you had what, what they would just call a rotation. So there might be four or five different positions in a particular attraction. So you would start out at the first position, which might be the entrance. So your job was to basically stand around out there as people come through the turnstile, you're handing them 3D glasses. And then uh, when it would get to whatever, 550, you would say, okay, no more for this show. Uh, that's enough. That's as many people as can come in. And they'd say, okay. And then, you know, you'd have to stand there and wait. And then the next position you'd go in and you'd be, um, you'd be inside and like herding the people into the small room. And then you had to sort of interact at certain times and hit a button on the wall that would open the doors and grab a microphone and entertain people and things like that. And then the next position was inside the big theater, which was my favorite because it was so nice and cool and dark in there. And it would be like a hundred degrees and humid outside. And in there it was nice and cool. And the movie was entertaining and, um, and you got to sort of stand down at the front and talk to the people as they were coming in and guide them to their seats and make fun of them in a gentle Disney friendly way. And then you got to interact with the uh, Sadler and Waldorf up on the wall and the penguins uh, would sort of nod to you as they were coming up to do their song. And, uh, and then the next position after that was exit and exit was hard because the movie I think was eight, and it's long something like that you had the t- the only the time uh that the movie was playing to get 500 to 600 3d glasses out of the they would throw them as they were leaving the the guests would throw them into these bins that looked like big trash cans and inside would be this burlap sack and there were two or three of those and you would have to collect them all take them into this little tiny room, the size of like a bathroom, uh, like almost like a, uh, bigger than a, than a bathroom in a, in a jet, but not much bigger. And you would have to dump these out onto a table and sort them. And you were sorting them so that because 3d glasses, they would get abused by the guests. They would be broken. The, the, um, the different glasses could get bent in half and broken. Lenses could be popped out, other things. They were pretty cheap. But what they actually did is they would take them and they would cart them off on a truck to this special station way back in the like hidden areas of the park uh, that uh, you would take them there. They had a special truck just for this. You would load them on the truck. You would drive them out there and take them to this little mini factory where they would either clean the glasses in some way uh, and re reuse them or they would take them apart and like literally melt them down and make new ones out of them. Whoa. And, uh, and so, but the, the point is in this one part of the park, I mean, this one part of the, the attraction, when that was, that was yours to do, you would grab those sacks, you would take them in and you had to sort them and you had to put them into these special racks. And if they were broken, you had to do certain things with them. If they were broken in a certain way, they'd go in one bin, another bin, but you had to sort them all up and then get back out there and return the, uh, the bags into their trash can receptacle things before the doors opened. Because when the doors opened, you had to be standing out there saying, okay, ladies, and gentlemen, please put your 3d glasses into these containers. Uh, so you had a very limited, so that part was very stressful, but the point is nobody knew that you were doing any of this stuff and they actually had it timed in such a way so that 
you would never wind up being the front person at the front and also the person inside or the person in the back. They had a time in such a way so that your rotation was always going so that it, it wouldn't be like looking like where was one person doing all of the jobs. In other words, if you went to the attraction, you wouldn't see the same person twice. Uh, it was always a different person. It, and, and, and I guess that added to the, the mystery of it. But behind the scenes at all of this stuff, there's all kinds of chaos going on. There's all kinds of things that the guests should never see. And I feel like that's, you know, there, there is that aspect that that's how Disney created the magic for the guest is that you never saw that. But when, then when you go to like a, a cheaper park, I'm not going to pick on universal, but you know what I mean? Oh, you, you, you just did You go to another park. And then like, you'd see, like you would never see in a, in a Disney park, you would never see somebody away from their attraction wearing the costume meant for that attraction. So you would never see someone who worked at the haunted mansion walking across the park to like go get a Coke and a, you know, and a snack or like walking to their car. You would never see that the entrance to the haunted mansion was down below. You would go down into the tunnel and the tunnel would lead you to wardrobe, which is where you'd get changed. And then you would get on a shuttle. It would take you to your car and you'd leave you just sort of magically appeared in your attraction in full costume. And the other parks that they built later didn't have tunnels. The other parks that they had, you would, uh, you would walk what they called backstage and you would, cause we were called cast members, you see. So you would have an entrance to the backstage area and you'd walk backstage. And again, you were never just seen walking through the park with like half your costume on, you know, smoking a cigarette. That was never, that would never happen. And that Disney did a good job of hiding that magic. But in the other parks, you would see that sometimes, or maybe often, and it would ruin, it would ruin the magic. It would ruin the, the whole image. I feel like that's what we're dealing with, with things like Twitter is you're getting to see people on their worst behavior. You're getting to see these things that no one should really see. You're getting to, to interact with everybody at all levels of preparedness and i just i think it's uh it's a mess sweetums yeah i, I can see not, that i do not want to see you smoking a cigarette in your costume dan no no i want only to see you come online already in your bear suit mm-hmm. that and a pretty pretty good costume when uh when i worked there and uh the shoes were converse high tops which i already owned but it was nice because they were super comfortable i uh i'm never out of my bear suit Dan. no i know it anyway that's 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 what i think 